by pressing down a special key and place a little melody. Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOM LP Chapel Hill in Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 12 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio in Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISAM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISAM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISAM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio in Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES Center. The GES Center works to integrate scientific knowledge and public values shaping the futures of biotechnology. Positioned at the nexus of science and technology, social sciences, and humanities, the center engages in collaborative research, education, and engagement by generating knowledge and fostering balanced and inclusive dialogue around emerging genetic engineering technologies and its products. Learn more by visiting the GES Center online, research.ncsu.edu slash GES. And follow them on Twitter at at GES Center NCSU. Finally, Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Gene Centric Therapeutics of Research Triangle Park. Gene Centric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at genecentric.com. WCOM and Radio and Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. Discovering new drugs to enter the therapeutic marketplace is not as easy as it used to be. Not that it was ever easy. Today, it's more challenging than ever. And in some areas, such as antibiotics, the need is growing rapidly. 
All the while, the market is changing. As Big Pharma is getting out of drug discovery to a great extent, concentrating their efforts on acquiring potential blockbuster compounds. As a result, responsibility for drug discovery has increasingly fallen to small startups and to academic laboratories. Today on Radio and Vivo, we're going to speak to an academic scientist who is intimately involved in the quest for new drugs. And we will learn about a variety of drug discovery efforts at NC State University. Joshua Pierce was recently promoted to Associate Professor of Chemistry at NC State, where he joined the faculty in 2012. In 2015, he received the prestigious National Science Foundation Career Award. And in 2017, he was named a University Faculty Scholar, which is a high honor at NC State. Josh earned his B.S. and Ph.D. from the University of Pittsburgh and was a postdoctoral research fellow at the Scripps Research Institute from 2009 through 2011. Josh Pierce, welcome to Radio En Vivo. Josh, I often like to start these conversations by asking my guests to share some background about their journey in life that brought them to where they are today. So uh, what's, what's your story? Well, I, I grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania and attended the University of Pittsburgh, as you mentioned, and it was really at that time that I thought I was going to be a doctor. I was going to go to medical school and address needs in human health by being a physician. And all of that changed when I started taking chemistry classes, starting with general chemistry, but most notably with organic chemistry in my sophomore year. And I realized at that point, uh, having never really uh, known before, that it was actually chemists and biologists and basic scientists that were able to contribute to transformational drugs that could help people and to, to change lives. And so from there, I realized that organic chemistry was something I was very passionate about and began organic chemistry research. Went on to stay at the University of Pittsburgh for my PhD, um, conducting research really at the interface of organic chemistry and drug discovery and chemical biology, followed by my, my postdoc in that area and, and ultimately arriving at NC State. And, and really through all of that, just identifying more and more with this idea that if we can make new structures, new compounds, that we can use them in, in a medicine setting to, to do things that we just can't do otherwise. I see. Excellent. Well, welcome to North Carolina, belatedly. Um, well, Judge, did I get my summary of the current state of drug discovery uh, approximately correct? I mean, to, to some degree. I mean, I think that the big pharma companies are still very invested in drug discovery. They just work on projects that are generally more de-risked than those that can happen in academic or smaller startups. And they, you know, for the riskier projects, the ones that maybe have less of a financial benefit uh, in the short term or, or even long term, things like antibiotics that you mentioned, one of the big issues is that it's just really hard to make money making antibiotics. And yeah. via our current uh, uh, market for, for such drugs, there's just not a lot of incentive for, for big players to, to work in those areas. And it's up to the smaller folks to figure out how to, to in, in get the money to get it to a point where then the big pharma companies say, okay, we'll, we'll acquire that. We'll push that forward. Right. So the, the, the business model really has, has, cha has evolved. Right, exactly, and being able to treat you know chronic infections uh, that you can you know prescribe uh, uh, medicines to patients for the rest of their lives is certainly a lot more lucrative than the antibiotic market. Right. Well, anyone who spends any time watching TV can attest to that. 
Sure. You know, they're they're certainly going after those chronic conditions. Right, and and, and, it, and it makes sense. It's just we need to find other avenues to push these these other disease areas forward. Sure. Well, from a, a scientific perspective, has the overall emphasis uh, shifted from so-called combinatorial chemistry, uh, which was a, a highly automated process where thousands of chemicals were screened for potential activity to more intuitive methods, more reliant on expertise than software? Uh, I would say the, the art of drug discovery, if you will, always has these trends that, that spike up, and combinatorial chemistry was certainly one of those that was invested very heavily in. And, uh, you know, it led to some, some successes, but I think particularly in the area of infectious disease, it's really been uh, natural products and, and uh, derivatives thereof that have been the tried and true starting point for infectious disease drug discovery. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I, I think that the combinatorial approaches have their benefits, but um, they really have had not too many successes in, in those areas. And so lots of other approaches, fragment-based drug design and, and other based rational drug design, have, have taken uh, uh, seats more more recently. A lot of computational approaches to uh, predict um, likely hits and to use those as starting points as well. And so, so a broad array of techniques um, that, that can be used, but I would say that in general the combinatorial era has still has its role, but mm-hmm. is not at the forefront of the field that it was uh, maybe 20 years ago. Right. I, I rem- remember about that time period, everybody thought that was the be-all and end-all, and you know that was going to just uh, answer everything. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and that was also at a time when a lot of the big pharma companies uh, disinvested from natural products research, something that many of them uh, had been very, very strongly uh, uh, ingrained in doing. And, yeah. uh, you know, that slowed down development of many of these uh, antibiotic-type molecules for a number of years until maybe in the last five or eight years there's been a real resurgence in, in people looking at those. Right, in- including you, and we will get... Very much in depth uh, to talk about that because uh, it's pretty exciting uh, that this trend back to natural products. Yeah, I know, absolutely. They, really, that's that's what pays your salary, right? <laughs> 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 well, Josh, um, when I started researching for our, our discussion, I was amazed at the amount of dis- drug discovery uh, actually taking place at NC State. Uh, you are intimately involved with those programs, so I'd like you to fill us in on them. I'd like to start with the Comparative Medicine Institute, or CMI. Tell us about the CMI. Yeah, well, the Comparative Medicine Institute started about three years ago at NC State, and it really grew out of a center that was in the vet school. And it was uh, the Institute's creation really signaled a strong move to bring researchers from across campus and also from across the triangle. We have many members from Duke and UNC um, as well. And the, the goal is to really unite faculty towards big pressing issues that, that are translational in nature and that can solve problems related to drug discovery and other regenerative medicine and, and the such. And, and my particular interests in the Comparative Medicine Institute are in the emerging and infectious disease arena. Um, uh, starting in July, I'll be associate director in that, in that unit. And our goals really are to foster large initiatives, training grants for graduate students, program grants and center grants for faculty, uh, startup uh, uh, efforts around uh, infectious disease and, and uh, emerging diseases. 
and, and to really enable faculty to go after these with resources and, and uh, uh, unity that maybe we didn't have previously. And, and so I, I think it's a growing strength at NC State. We're very committed to building uh, depth in terms of faculty, in terms of infrastructure, um, in the areas of infectious disease, to really create a, a, a hub for infectious disease research, not only in the Triangle, but hopefully in the, in the U.S. and the world. Sure. Well, I know that there are, there are actually four uh, program areas of concentration, right? Yeah, yes, uh, we, we're, we've uh, merged into three more recently, uh, oh, okay. but, but yes, there, there are, and emerging infectious disease is one, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, the, the regenerative medicine group is, is another, and uh, a more broad, broad group, uh, TPP, really covers a wide range of other areas, including allergy, itch, and pain research in terms of drug discovery, but really just a variety of other health-related uh, uh, translational topics. And so we're, uh, you know, uh, a broad unit that specializes in certain areas more in-depth, but it's uh, really a, a university-level institute that allows the different colleges and the different faculty from those different colleges, which historically have been isolated and not interacting as much as they should be, to use this institute as a way to, to really do that. And already we've had a lot of successes um, bringing faculty together to get external grants, uh, co-sponsoring uh, seed, funny, seed money for faculty to, to be able to start collaborations that otherwise wouldn't be possible um, and the such. And, and so that's really the, the vision of the, the institute um, to, to move NC State forward in this regard. I see. And I understand that uh, the CMI is actually directed by Dr. Jorge Piedrahita, uh, who was a guest on Radio in Vivo many years ago now. Yes, yes. Jorge was the director of the center in the vet school and is the inaugural uh, director of the CMI and really serves to provide the vision and, and uh, resources to, to allow us to, to do what we do. Josh, I found a statement uh, about the CMI that I'd like to read to you and get you to kind of unpack for us. Okay. Um, That is, under the CMI, this initiative will provide private and federal funding opportunities as well as commercialization efforts for projects that are currently siloed in either individual labs or different institutions. Yeah, no. So so that's really, I guess, the underlying vision of the, the... at least the role of the emerging and infectious disease and and an initiative that I'm part of, the Natural Products to Drugs Initiative as well, is to really take faculty on campus or across campuses in the triangle and identify the strength that they have and then use these strengths to pair them with faculty in other colleges and other research areas to create teams of faculty that can tackle these bigger uh, you know, societal issues of, of, in this case, infectious disease drug discovery. And you know, it, it may be faculty that are synthesizing <coughs> molecules but not realizing that these molecules are really valuable in biologist assays uh, at the vet school or, or over at UNC. It may be that there's biologists that are in desperate need of new scaffolds to, to study and to work on, and they're, not, they're just not fully realizing the potential that we have in the triangle. And, and you know, there's huge depth in biology and infectious diseases, in chemistry and infectious diseases, in, in clinical and animal models of infectious diseases, and, you know, piecing these uh, 
faculty together, we can go after these large federal grants, we can attract the uh, uh, industry to, to partner with us to create new initiatives, and these are all things that are in various stages of, of execution. We're relatively young, uh, the initiatives and, and things have just started in the last you know, year or two, mm-hmm. and so you know, it's, a, it's a long journey, but we're you know, building a framework that hopefully we can grow into and, and be able to produce some, some meaningful results. Absolutely. Well, it, it sounds like it's really all about uh, what, what really are some of the most popular, I hate to call them buzzwords because mm-hmm. that kind of uh, doesn't give it a, enough uh, serious attention, but collaboration, communication, and interdisciplinary Yes, I mean, and that, that's what the CMI is all about. And, you know, one of the things is the another buzzword is team science and, sure. you know, creating teams that can go after problems. I think the era of having single PIs that solve problems from A to Z is really one that, that is becoming less and less common, um, even for the most uh, simple of NIH grants uh, nowadays. You know, you have multiple PIs. Uh, teams that have expertise in their deep expertise in their own niche area coming together to solve big problems and and the CMI is there to foster that and we do it everywhere from the undergraduate level the whole way through to the faculty level very active in uh, creating undergraduate programs that can pair them with teams of faculty so that they don't just do undergraduate research in one lab but can also do that across multiple labs same at the graduate student level, and then, and then obviously pairing faculty as well towards these larger funding opportunities. I see. Well, um, another example I'd like to explore a bit is um, the idea that these collaborative efforts uh, can actually result in commercialization opportunities. And I understand that that has actually taken place, see, even... Uh, over the uh, short course of the CMI's existence. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example from my own research, I suppose. And, and that that's, uh, uh, we recently started a company called Synoxa Sciences. And, you know, this startup company is focused on advancing some of the small molecules from my lab in partnership um, with, with collaborators to uh, create new, new leads for drug discovery and infectious disease uh, create small molecules that can be efficacious against biofilms and infections that have uh, biofilms uh, implicated with them. And, and this all started via uh, collaborative efforts at NC State, um, working initially to synthesize molecules, then looking deeper into the biological aspects of these, these molecules, and now really thinking about branching out into animal models and other, other collaborative uh, uh, studies and you know the the sort of transition from the academic setting to the the startup setting the commercialization uh, pathway is is heavily enabled by by the university uh, at, at NC State um, there's a lot of incentive to create uh, uh, startups to uh, patent and license your technologies as appropriate and, and the, the CMI's role in that is really to just support the faculty in finding the partnerships they need to provide seed funding when appropriate to get projects over the hurdles they need to get over. Uh, you know, one of the big issues is always being able to get the data you need to demonstrate a certain uh, pathway towards commercialization or the data you need for that patent submission or that preliminary grant submission. And, you know, if you don't have enough data to go to a federal agency, 
and you don't have startup from from uh, you know the university or something along those lines, you really need to have a, a pool of money to to facilitate that, and that's one of the the visions of the CMI is to to get those projects that we really see having huge potential, just to the point where they can raise money other ways. I see. So you actually, I understand, and maybe this needs updating. You you actually hold seven patents. Is that correct? I believe so. Um, yes, and so that's something that's been uh, you know very very uh, encouraged, and really it's it's essential if you want to ha- be able to commercialize your science, mm-hmm. and you need to do it at a stage before you have it advanced to demonstrate that it's efficacious in humans, and you need to be able to, to you know, get the IP coverage. You need to, to be able to, to work in the area and to, to feel comfortable investing and, and driving it forward, and, you know, as an academic scientist, that's uh, not really, you know, always what you get up in the morning is thinking about, you know, patents and IP landscape and startups but in today's world and with the ability to really transition molecules forward and and with the support structure that's there for that it's an exciting way to be able to drive your science forward in a more commercialization centric manner while you still have your more academic home where you get to ask the more uh, cutting edge questions the the less uh, commercialization friendly type type questions that hopefully eventually can turn into those kind of projects but initially are not at a stage where, where people would find them very, very reasonable commercialization-wise. Sure. Well, the, the government funding, I, sh- I hope, still supports that, that basic level. They do, yeah. and, and there's actually huge opportunities for the government to support the startups as well. And, so, and, mm-hmm. and those funding mechanisms are very complementary, and so it's one of the attractive aspects of going out and, and getting into the startup space is mm-hmm. that you can, you can try to get money for your science um, also from the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation, but just you're getting for more small business type exactly type SBIR type grants uh-huh. and, and as such, uh-huh. and so the, and and those allow you to you know advance your science in a in a different way, and and that's exciting. Absolutely. Well, Josh, I know the veterinary medicine program at NC State is particularly strong and always has been. Um, how does that element contribute? To the efforts of of the CMI. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the CMI sort of rose out of the vet school. It's no longer, uh, uh, you know, underneath that umbrella. But I think the vet school presents really unique opportunities for us. You know, in the triangle, particularly, I think you look at biomedical research and you see UNC with a medical school and you see Duke with a medical school. And NC State's the one with the vet school. But what that allows you to do is have some really interesting translational uh, settings where you can use both small and large animal models. You can use domestic animal models of disease, um, you know, pigs, cows, horses, um, you know, uh, lots of variety in large animal models as well. And this creates some really unique uh, experiments and settings that both folks at UNC, Duke, and NC State can use to study small molecules and other therapeutics. And really, it's those animal models that are a key aspect of human therapeutic development overall. And and so, you know, the molecules don't go into humans first. They go sure. into animals first overall. And having those models has become really critical. And, and we have some really unique ones, um, certainly in the area of infectious disease, um, but also across uh, other other health areas, including cancer and, and allergy, itch, and pain. 
And, and so there's some, some real opportunities there, I think, to engage the, the, the vet school, the clinicians in the vet school, and to, to facilitate the areas of drug discovery um, broadly. And, and that's something that in the past hasn't been capitalized on as much as it could have been. And that's, uh, I think, part of the role of CMI is to unite those, those researchers in the clinical side and the veterinary medicine side with scientists in the College of Science and the College of Engineering and then across the triangle as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it all sounds like it's, it's part of the, the so-called One Health approach. Yeah, there's certainly, there's certainly elements of that throughout, and that's something that the, the veterinary school has, has been, been a champion of and part of for, for a long time. And, yeah, the, you know, the idea is that you know, we're not uh, independently doing veterinary medicine. We're not independently doing human medicine. We're developing treatments of biological efficacy and you know, uh, generally targeting human health. And, you know, sometimes those end up being relevant for animal health, and that makes sense either due to, you know, toxicity profiles or financial, you know, uh, requirements or whatever it may be. But, but yeah, it's, it's a mindset of, you know, using all resources that we have um, to, to advance small molecules towards the clinic, whether that be the veterinary clinic or the human health clinic. Okay, or both. Or both, <laughs> Absolutely. You are listening to Radio In Vivo, and my guest today is chemistry professor Dr. Josh Pierce from North Carolina State University. Okay, Josh, now let's introduce and talk about a very exciting new initiative that you lead called Natural Products to Drugs, or NP2D, which is a joint effort between the CMI and the NC State Department of Chemistry. Tell us more. Yeah, great. It's an initiative that we started uh, a little bit less than a year ago, I, I guess. And the initiative was really centered on this, you know, simple fact that at NC State and really in the state of North Carolina, we have a treasured resource of both natural products and a lot of researchers that are very invested in studying natural products, whether that be from a natural products isolation point of view, a natural products synthesis point of view, or a synthetic biology approach to natural products as well. And so with all of this strength and also strengths as, as we've already noted in drug discovery and, and translational medicine and uh, biomedical sciences uh, generally, we really viewed there to be an opening to create a, a unified uh, group that would focus on leveraging our strength in natural products to developing leads for drug discovery. And so I've really taken on this, this role of trying to align groups, much like we were talking in the CMI, thinking about you know, doing this more broadly in the Institute. But for this initiative, we're focused on taking these natural products and being able to position them to be able to be explored for a variety of different human health applications. And, you know, chemistry is a leader on this simply because chemistry are the makers of molecules. And we have a lot of faculty that are interested in the synthesis of novel organic compounds in the, in the synthetic biology uh, production of natural products and modification of uh, natural products. And then really in the initial biological testing of those molecules as well, particularly in the areas of infectious disease. And so we take those strengths and combine them with strengths in biological sciences, in microbiology, in the vet school, and really can create a A to Z platform to take molecules from the state of their isolation, whether that be from a marine sea sponge or from a North Carolina plant, 
and really advance them the whole way into an animal model to demonstrate efficacy at the vet school. And at that point, we have a product that's really appealing for commercialization, for additional funding, um, and for partnerships with both large and small industry. It's, it's definitely a new, new approach, but actually it's a... Uh, time-honored traditional approach, isn't it? It it is. You know, the natural products have served as a starting point for infectious disease drugs since since the beginning of of, uh, uh, antimicrobial discovery. With a rich history right here in North Carolina. And and absolutely, and a rich history here in the state. And And our goal really was to just identify that NC State, not traditionally a powerhouse in biomedical sciences, particularly in the drug discovery sense, you know, has huge strengths. And we've had faculty success successfully start startup companies in the past. We have faculty that have uh, been extraordinarily successful, but we haven't built that into a larger enterprise, a, a center or a group of, of faculty that are really nationally and internationally recognized to have strength in these areas. And so that's the vision. Um, and it's not just an NC State initiative. It's, it's across the, the triangle and state to bring any and all people interested in natural products, in infectious disease drug discovery, and, and you know, bring them together towards these goals. So just for the benefit of our, our listeners who may not be as intimately familiar with the terminology we're, uh, we're using here, what exactly are natural products? Yeah, so natural products are molecules that are produced in nature, and they're, they can be produced by any organism or any, any uh, living um, thing, but they're generally what we would call secondary metabolites. And so secondary metabolites are molecules that organisms make. uh, Let's just say we're talking about bacteria. Um, Bacteria are producing these molecules not because they're part of their primary metabolism, they need to survive um, and function, but they have some secondary role. It could be an anti-predatory role. It could be some evolutionary advantage that these molecules they're producing provides. And so these these molecules are, are produced and many, many of them are, are produced in these organisms. It's not just one or two. It can be, can be thousands or more molecules that, that are produced. And these structures can serve as really exciting lead points for us in, in drug discovery. Um, and, and as I mentioned, that can be bacteria that live in sea sponges in the ocean. That can be sea sponges themselves. Or it could be the, the leaves outside of the studio right now that, that contain molecules that could have really interesting health benefits. Or even the pail of dirt from the, the garden, right? A- absolutely. And particularly the bacteria that live in that dirt. Those yeah. are exciting sources of, of uh, small molecules. When you, when you say that, uh, CRISPR comes immediately to mind. Right, yeah, CRISPR. I mean, everybody knows about CRISPR now these days. And, you know, the, the CRISPR approaches, the CRISPR, te- the gene editing approaches, you know, are, are really a, a complementary aspect to many of the things we think about. Um, certainly, we use those kinds of technologies in our uh, basic science to understand how the small organic molecules we use work. Mm-hmm. Um, but additionally, there's huge excitement around thinking about using CRISPR and other gene editing technologies directly as therapeutics. And NC State has been very successful in this area, and a startup company, um, Locus uh, Biosciences out of NC State, has, has been usually successful to try to advance this exact idea of using uh, CRISPR-Cas technologies to to serve as anti-infectives. And but it, it came from a natural product, and uh, it initially didn't it? Yeah, I mean, those, those ideas are very naturally occurring in the sense of the origin. The exact ki- kinds of molecules and the exact kinds of uh, uh, approaches are, are 
are I would say distinct and complementary. But but yes, the, uh, the it's a very hot technology and one that that will certainly um, be continue to be so for many years to come. And your your colleague Rudolf Barangu, who is one of the pioneers of that has been a guest on the show before as well. Yes, and he's also involved in the Comparative Medicine Institute and, uh, and, and part of these initiatives in infectious disease as well. Excellent. Yes. Uh, well, getting back to NP2D, uh, how, how will this effort differ from uh, more traditional drug discovery? Or is it really just an elaboration? Well, I mean, to some degree, it's an elaboration. I think what it does for us here in the, the Triangle in North Carolina is gives us a framework to, to build and advertise and, and grow the program. I think in terms of it being different from traditional drug discovery, I would say it's very similar to the natural products drug discovery that, that you know, Big Pharma routinely did uh, maybe 30, 40 years ago during the heyday of antibiotic discovery. But, you know, in, in terms of the, the sort of initiative and, and why it matters and how it's different, I really think it's just because we have a unique set of capabilities, a unique set of faculty, and really a true investment, a deep-seated investment in leveraging these resources towards this discovery of antibiotics and specifically um, that area. Um, also of interest in, in other uh, disease areas, allergy, itch, and pain as well. I'll just point out um, that, that NC State has, has um, interest. Researchers certainly have interest in cancer in collaboration with UNC as well. But, you know, I, I think we all know UNC's cancer efforts are extraordinarily strong as, as well as Duke. And, and so, you know, I think we've, we've uh, really highlighted these areas of infectious disease to be, be a focus. The, the, the use of natural products, I think, largely has become complicated in, in, in drug discovery because they're complex structures. They're challenging to synthesize. They, they maybe are quite difficult to think about how, either how to do that or perceived to be quite expensive to do that. But synthetic chemistry has come a long way in the last decades and our ability to access molecules and to be able to prepare molecules that maybe would have been outlandish 20 years ago has, has come a long way. And if you couple that with synthetic biology approaches where we can harness the power of enzymes and bacteria to do synthesis for us, I think we can combine these efforts to really enable the use of natural products and drug discovery in ways that maybe make it much more feasible than it would have been previously. I see. So what uh, types of natural products will you look at? And so in general, at least for my group in specific, we're very interested in marine natural products and a lot of alkaloids, which means molecules that contain uh, basic nitrogen atoms. And these molecules are generally highly structurally complex. They're caged polycyclic structures. Oftentimes they have uh, charges built into them that, that make them um, really unique looking from a chemist's point of view and really quite exciting. But they also have really uh, unusual biological properties. And obviously, as, as um, is likely gathered in an infectious disease, but other areas as well. And, you know, but I would say overall, we're pretty agnostic into the exact type of natural product we're interested in. We're just mainly focused on new structures that haven't really been explored to great depth before and structures that we know we can translate towards some kind of biological outcome. 
Now, will there be failures there? Of course, drug discovery is very challenging and very few drugs actually, very few molecules actually make it to the stage of being a drug. Yeah. If I had to say, you know, what my group in particular does, or even what most of the efforts in these initiatives are, we can call it natural products to drugs, but what really it is is natural products to chemical probes. It's to develop molecules that can help us understand basic infectious disease biology, can help us, you know, pave the way towards therapeutics, towards drugs, and ultimately, hopefully, lead to drugs. But, you know, the path to that is, you know, having a small molecule that has efficacy and potency and all of these things is just really step one. It's then having a molecule that's safe, a molecule that can be delivered, a molecule that can be produced cost efficiently. Those, those issues sort of stack up on top of these things. A, a molecule that has a, a half-life and isn't metabolized in two minutes after it's administered. So, so all of these, uh, you know, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and, and such topics are, are really the the backbone of drug discovery you know most of our efforts are sort of on the front end of that to come up with molecules that are platforms to start that journey and, and hopefully we can create a lot of those and so we just have quite a few shots on goal to get some really exciting new structures that can eventually lead to therapeutics well it, it strikes me as almost kind of mind-boggling in terms of the you know countless compounds out there in the natural world how do you how do you focus in and decide okay i really like what that sea sponge is doing <laughs> how yeah. do you how do you know how do you narrow things down yeah, so, so we work with a lot of natural product isolation chemists around the world that spend their lives finding these new molecules. Generally, they're screening natural product extracts uh, for some type of biological activity. But one of the big issues in, I would say, natural product drug discovery is you really only get what you look for. And so if you're interested in cancer, you're going to screen all of these extracts against different assays that will tell you if they're active against cancer, and maybe you'll find some really interesting molecules. But you could be overlooking molecules that could lead to the cure for Parkinson's disease or, or MRSA or pick your, pick your uh, disease. Yeah. And, and it's really just a throughput, a resource issue um, to be able to look for those things. And so there certainly is an element of luck involved in, in some of that. But I think in general what we try to do is focus on structural diversity to try to find molecules that are most different from molecules that we've already studied. And then to try to find biological diversity and look at them against things that are an array of, of different assays that can show us sort of a fingerprint of how these molecules might behave. And then build from there. Will we miss things? Of course. Um, but hopefully we can find enough exciting leads that can, can move us uh, forward. I noticed that you're, uh, one of the projects you're working on is a collaborative effort uh, between NC State and UNC Wilmington's Center for Marine Biotechnology uh, to identify novel natural products for development as antibiotics. Tell, tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, so th that project is just getting off the ground, but the underlying principle in that project is that you know UNC Wilmington has a rich resource in natural product isolates uh, from the oceans in a variety of different uh, dinoflagellates and other organisms that um, produce an array of really interesting natural products. And these molecules have historically been, you know, they've been isolated, many of them have been characterized, they've been cataloged, 
cataloged, but they haven't really been harnessed to explore their efficacy as, as uh, therapeutics or as leads for therapeutics. And so we're really invested in figuring out how we can, can take all of those resources and plug them into biology and, and uh, uh, whether it be microbiology or cancer biology or, or allergy itch and pain assays to explore the role of these, these molecules and to provide new scaffolds and to take North Carolina resources and, and really bring, bring them back to life in terms of the value of them. They, you know, there could be really amazing molecules in, in those collections. And we're just now sort of digging through what those molecules are and, and how they might be useful for us. Well, the folks down there must be really excited about, about this project. Right. And, and I think, again, back to our earlier point about these, you know, sort of islands of, of research. Mm-hmm. You know, you have folks that are, that are exploring all of these marine ecosystems and all of these molecules and bacteria and sponges and, and the such, but aren't always fully connected into the, the channels that allow those to easily flow into the drug discovery pipeline. And so being able to enable that and creating new diversity. Because, you know, many screening libraries that, that people use to look for drugs are very similar. They have molecules that are, you know, largely produced via the combinatorial area that, that you were mentioning. And, you know, being able to access structures that are truly unique and different and distinct is really of high value to, to start off a, a drug discovery program. You sound like you're really excited about what you do. Oh, it's amazing. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's the synthesis of these molecules and the preparation of them that's the bread and butter of, of what I think about most days. And, you know, how do we enable uh, a chemist in a lab to be able to mimic these structures and prepare molecules that maybe are simpler for us to make, that maybe have you know, better properties or more soluble or, or uh, just better drug-like compounds? And you know, how do we develop the chemistry to enable that? Because without access to these structures, we just can't, can't do the, the science. And one of the things we didn't talk about is that while these organisms produce these natural products, they generally produce them in amazingly small quantities. And so you could never do a drug discovery campaign with the amount of molecules that are being produced by a marine sponge, even if you were to make that sponge extinct and collect it all. And so we need to find ways as chemists to enable the production of these molecules and then the further study of them. And, and that's, again, sort of why the chemistry department has, has partnered in this effort, because we see the huge value of leveraging the chemistry towards these more translational areas and the multidisciplinary nature of these projects. Well, Josh, I know that uh, the research in your own lab, uh, as we've kind of touched on, focuses primarily on marine natural products. Uh, tell us about your groups and, and its research program. Yeah, so my group is a synthetic organic chemistry group that focuses on developing new synthetic strategies to make these complex natural products. And to do that, a lot of time what's required is that we simply need to create new chemistry. We need to develop reactions that currently don't exist that allow us to make bonds that are part of these natural products in facile and scalable and economically reasonable ways. And so that, that's largely what my research group does day in and day out. But we have, in a growing way, also engaged microbiology and chemical biology and harnessing these molecules to look at their effects on cells and their infection, effects in infectious disease. And, and my students get sort of you know, multidisciplinary training in that regard. 
We certainly have a number of external collaborations in place that allow us to go deeper in those areas once we have our initial findings. But my students, you know, in the morning might synthesize a molecule, in the afternoon might set up an antimicrobial assay on that molecule, and the next day be able to look at whether the molecule they made the previous day has an effect on those particular pathogens that we're studying. And you know, it's a really exciting uh, space for them to work in and a really uh, uh, impactful uh, area for them to be able to take their chemistry and, and also look at these biological questions. Well, I, I love your lab's uh, slogan, uh, which is altering the future via synthetic chemistry and chemical biology since 2012. Uh, that That's a wonderful uh, synthesis of uh, exactly what you've been talking about. Yeah, a little bit of a bold statement, I suppose. But I think at the end of the day, it's just trying to get excitement around this idea that, you know, you can't do things with new molecules without having a chemical access to those structures. And really that, that chemistry and basic science is the underlying field that allows that to be possible. And I think in general, that's a missed aspect. I think if you went out and asked folks, you know, where do drugs come from? What's the initial steps in that? You know, people would be talking about doctors. Maybe they'll be talking about biologists, but I don't think chemists are going to come up as as much as they should but at the end of the day every single pharmaceutical company you know every single drug discovery effort um, uh, is, is starting with with chemists and labs making molecules and you know for for students thinking about what they can do with their lives uh, and how they can do meaningful meaningful contributions to society I think it's a really exciting area and, and one that you know, just needs to be championed more than it is. Well, you, you're doing a great job of that. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, it's in, interesting that you you uh, you seem to emphasize methods development quite a bit. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, the making molecules all really is what kind of methods you have. It's you know, the analogy would be you know, for a carpenter building a house, you only have the tools that you have and. You know, if you don't have the right tools or the right lumber, you can't build a house that, that maybe an architect designed. Well, you know, chemists, if you want to make the analogy, we're both the carpenters and the architects all in one. You know, we design the molecules we want to make or have the, the natural product scaffold that nature has, has been the architect for. But then we need to come up with the tools and the, the raw uh, uh, access to those compounds. And, you know, what, what you realize is that even though, you know, the field of chemistry is uh, a historic one and one that has been, you know, going on for centuries, there still is a huge need to develop new chemistries and the field is thriving in, in the methods development area to be able to do that. And, and, you know, without those new methods and without a fundamental investment in, in science that, you know, when you look at it, it doesn't seem like it has anything to do with drug discovery. It's those methods that are really enabling the scientists in drug discovery to make things that become our drugs. Well, tell us a bit about some of the, the new methods you've uh, pioneered in your lab. Yeah, so our, our lab is very focused on heterocycle synthesis. We're very um, often thinking about ways that we can construct heterocycles in new ways. And, and those are... Um, and, and I'm sorry, what is heterocycle? Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> heter so a heterocycle is a, is a molecule that just has hetero atoms, so things like nitrogen, oxygen, sulfur um, in them. And so that's in contrast to things that would just have carbon in them. And so these, these molecules tend to be things, you know, like a sugar, like glucose would, be, would have a heterocycle in it. To having an oxygen in in the ring and and so we think about making these because these kinds of uh, structures are present in most of the natural products that we're interested in and so we think about ways of making these 
via really facile reactions that can be done in, in one step. And so making multiple chemical bonds in one step and thinking about new ways that we can construct um, CO, CS, and CN bonds, so, so simple organic structures, but in very complex settings. And one of the things that's becoming a, a new area in my lab is thinking about how we can use electrochemistry and so how we can literally use electrons in, in uh, reactions to do new chemistry and to make bonds and so that's something that you'll see emerge going forward but all of this is sort of driven towards this idea of how do we make the molecules that might someday be these drug leads. So is the synthesis from the natural product uh, to a, a laboratory-made compound, if you will. Is that is that the tough part? Yeah, I mean, it's all tough. But, you know, the, it certainly is challenging to develop syntheses of these natural products. Um, it can take anywhere from, you know, a year to 10 years to be able to figure out how to chemically synthesize them depending on their complexity and the issues that, that you have. But, you know, at that point, the natural products are really just the starting point. You know, in many cases, you know, these natural products haven't been evolved to treat human disease, right? They've been evolved for a certain purpose in the ecosystem in which they're, they're in. And oftentimes, I mean, that's a, a topic for another show, but we don't really fully understand the ecological role of many of these uh, secondary metabolites. But, but, you know, once we... Uh, have identified them, you know, we want to think about how we can alter them. Oftentimes we might actually think about trying to simplify them to make structures that are chemically easier to access because nature makes molecules based on the building blocks it has, whether that be the amino acids or other uh, building blocks that are present in nature. And so what you find sometimes is that the structure of the molecules isn't fully required to get the biological activity you want. You can use simplified chemicals and get to the same kind of stage. It's not always true. There's mm -hmm. examples where it's not, but in some cases it is. And that's really enabling because then you can have a much more cost-effective and much more practical approach and also just a faster approach to be able to make them and study them. Sure. So one basic question I had, uh, Josh, is how do you know when you have a hit? Well, it just takes a lot of uh, a lot of hard work and screening, and so you know, so we make all these molecules, uh, whether it be the intermediates towards the natural product, the natural product itself, or an array of different analogs. And at every stage, we're looking for the activity of these structures in a wide array of biological assays, and trying to get what we would call a structural activity profile. We want to sort of understand how the chemical changes we're making to the structure impact the biology that we're observing. And we try to then build a model, and sometimes via computational approaches as well, to, 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 to build what we'll call a pharmacophore, a core chemical entity that's driving the activity. And then from that, we optimize it, tweak it, build on, build on out from it. I see. Um that that sounds like it uh, must take up a lot of your days. Yeah, it, it, it really is. You know, and synthetic organic chemistry inherently is just a lot of, in front of a fume hood, making compounds, purifying compounds, characterizing compounds. You know, it's, it's not for the faint of heart in terms of uh, <laughs> being able to, to do that, that work. But, you know, the, the products are, are really invaluable. And, you know, still in 2018, for most of these topics, there simply is no other way to access these kinds of molecules. There's a lot of really exciting technologies, whether that be synthetic biology or, you know, we talked about genome editing and all of these other approaches. But, but still, you know, today, the, you know, the, I guess the death of um, small molecule as drugs has been uh, 
sort of forecasted for decades. And I would say it's as strong or stronger now than it ever has been. And, you know, biologics certainly serve their role. But, you know, small molecules have huge advantages, and we just need to do a better job of continuing to innovate and develop and invest in, in those areas. Well, Josh, I wanted to get you to briefly tell us a little bit about one of the specific projects that you've uh, been working on and you recently published a paper on, uh, on the synthesis of a natural product known as, and hang with me here, Lipoxazolidinone. Yeah, oh, good. Yeah, uh, it's a molecule that, that was you know isolated off the co coast of Guam. We developed a chemical synthesis of it over the last few years, and really, what we've been most excited about is the natural product itself has pretty horrible drug-like properties. It's a very lipophilic molecule. It's very it'd be not very water soluble at all. And it just looks like it could have some potential liabilities as a drug, but we've been able to take that core structure and build off of it into some really um, uh, exciting new directions that enable it to look much more like uh, a drug. And we've, in that process, increased its activity, expanded its activity, and that program broadly is actually the underlying technology that's part of the startup company, Synoxa Sciences, that I had mentioned uh, previously. And so, you know, that's been something that's worked out amazingly well over the, the last few years. And, and, you know, many times projects like that don't. You make a natural product, you synthesize it, it doesn't really have the properties that it was advertised to have, or you find it has other liabilities that they just make it not very exciting. But in this case, we're extraordinarily excited about these molecules, and they have some really unique properties, some really unique efficacy against both the pathogen profile that they have efficacy against, but also against bacteria that have biofilms associated with them. And, and those, are, those studies are still ongoing, and uh, will be reported soon. It's an antibacterial that yes. you're exploring with that that may have efficacy uh, against uh, resistance also, right? Y yes, yes. It's effective against uh, a wide panel of uh, multidrug resistant bacteria. Um, and the other exciting part of these molecules is that resistance to these molecules is very slow to develop. And so we, we've shown that even over the course of 65 days uh, of dosing, the resistance is extraordinarily slow to develop. And that's one of the huge issues in modern day infectious disease drug discovery is being able to combat this issue of drug resistance, where the bacteria can literally, before a small molecule is even in the clinic, there can already be uh, clinically identified resistance to that, to that small molecule. Sure. Well, uh, it's certain that that is a extreme need right now. Absolutely. I mean, in the infectious disease drug discovery area is an extreme need, and we don't just need one new antibiotic. We don't just need five new antibiotics. We need as many as we can get across as many pathogens as we can get, and we need to keep that development going because inevitably the bacteria will become resistant to these molecules, and we just need to keep out innovating them and look at alternate approaches as well, such as CRISPR, such as phage, such as these other, other uh, approaches. But it needs to be a sort of all-hands-on-deck broad approach to solve these problems. So is 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 that extreme need uh, helping you acquire funding for these projects? For yeah, there, there, there certainly is improved funding in these areas. You know, I think that there's, uh, uh, over the last decade, I would say, there's become a very clear need. The World Health, World Health Organization has identified this as one of the top three threats to, to human health overall. And, you know, we're really just a couple antibiotic failures from, you know, a pre-antibiotic era where, you know, you cut yourself and get an infection and, and, you know, they may not be able to treat you. And, yeah. and so, you know, 
know, the, the good news is, though, that, you know, I think there's a lot of molecules in the pipeline. There's a lot of molecules in, you know, uh, clinical trials. And, and I think over the next five years, we'll see a lot, new, a lot of new molecules hitting the clinic. But like I said, we need more and we need the, the problem was that we just stopped investing in it because it was perceived as a solved problem. And, you know, for too long, everybody just sort of said, oh, well, we have antibiotics. But, you know, I, I think then, all too late, we realized, well, many of those are stopping to work, and we need to fix that problem. Absolutely. Well, Josh, you're doing some really important and very exciting work, uh, and I wish you the best of luck for continued success. Thanks for joining me today on Radio In Vivo. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you. We've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio In Vivo. You can check the website, radioinvivo.net, for our Facebook site, for the lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on Volunteer Power, WCOM-FM, Carborough and Chapel Hill. If you enjoy this show, we ask that you support the radio station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.